dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark secret place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. You're... Weekly look at the world melting down, and um, well, it's almost like an entire glacier that was we we predicted was going to melt down, melted down today. The uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, leaving North Korea after the emergency mission, uh, putting out a couple different fires there, uh, leaving effectively empty-handed, not just empty-handed, but with. Two separate stories. Uh, the story he gave when he landed in Japan uh, about uh, the story of, uh, of of hope and optimism and uh, the next round of talks with North Korea on July 12th versus the story that the North Koreans delivered to the Korean Central News Agency. Uh, we'll certainly get to that. But there is breaking news, everybody. Uh, if you haven't heard this, Thai authorities, led by the uh, Thai military, the the, uh, Royal Thai Navy and Army, uh, have launched the rescue mission for the 12 boys and their soccer coach that have been stranded in that cave. Um, They were were found about uh, five days ago after being uh, lost or stranded for nine days. So now they've been in that cave for about uh, 16 days now total. And with rain impending, with uh, monsoon rain on the way, the uh, the conditions in the cave are are such that they've decided that uh, the best course of action was to go with a risky uh, dive mission. That with uh, rain on the way, uh, it is known that this cave complex actually does fill up, and that it did not fill up uh, when when those kids went in there and their coach. Uh, rain was uh, was on the horizon. Uh, they didn't know that they went in as the rain fell and began filling up the cave, but it didn't have enough water, didn't create enough water to actually cut off uh, or, you know, completely fill it, making uh, survival uh, unlikely. And so they were they were found by a uh, an expedition of divers who followed the, their trail and found the only place it probably could be. And sure enough, they were there. And so between... Uh, about five days ago, and today they've been going back and forth, formulating a plan. Uh, the The report was that there were two options: that they could stay there for possibly weeks until the water went down, and and uh, the water was being pumped and drained and all that. Uh, but the thing complicating with that option, or complicating that option, uh, is that there are monsoon rains that are expected to arrive within about two days, and when they do. The cave experts and uh, park rangers and all that have said, no, this is a sure thing. When those when those rains get here, this thing is shut off. It happens every single year in the sun, southern hemisphere between June and pardon me, July and August uh, that the rains actually fill this cave up and they shut it off to tourists. And they said, you know, these kids shouldn't have gone in there in the first place, but nevertheless, there there they are. And this cave absolutely positively will fill up for a month. And uh, and that means where they are, there's uh, no more no more air. And where does the air go? Well, it's limestone. The air actually leaches through the limestone and uh, and and leaves a void, uh, which is filled with water. So uh, Thai authorities have what they did was about uh, two hours ago, hour and a half ago, they assembled the foreign press. And there, it, it's a it's a, uh, a a phalanx. It is a scrum. There are hundreds of foreign media from around the world there. And Thai authorities pulled them together and said, you have until 9 a.m. our time to clear out here, which is about two hours ago. Um, And they said, you have uh, until 9 a.m. to pick up your camps and go back to the new press camp, which is about a half mile away. But there will be no photography um, here at the site. Um, There will be no photographs by you guys of anyone coming out of the cave. We will have official photographers here. But uh, we ask you now to move back there. So they began marshalling the press away about an hour and a half ago. Uh, and, and, uh, and in doing so, they said, because we're beginning a, 
uh, a rescue mission. And, and part of the deal is, so now keep in mind that to get to where these kids are, these expert divers, remember they lost a guy three days ago. So these, these divers with years, you know, thousands of hours of experience, it takes them five and a half hours just to get there. And so it's a total of at least 11-hour round trip. And that is uh, when expert divers are doing it. And so some, uh, some sources uh, have briefed uh, some American uh, media and said, well, you know, here's the quick and dirty on this. We've spent the last five days pre-positioning uh, filled scuba tanks, oxygen tanks, and, and air mix tanks along the way. There are three or four chambers where there is actual standing air that can work as rest stops. And so the plan here is to get in there and uh, begin fitting these boys with a, a, a face mask uh, that does not involve, you know, them having to bite down on an oxygen tube or anything like that. They're going to wear a full face mask. Uh, there's going to be a diver accompanying them holding a tank, and they're going to escort each boy uh, through the chambers to the first rest chamber. And they will sit there for as long as they have to, and then they'll get a new tank, they'll get some food, get some rest, and uh, then go to the next chamber, next chamber, next chamber. So for for a you know fantastically physically fit Thai Navy diver, it's a 11-hour round trip for these boys they're saying, you know, don't expect anything for 24 hours. Um, this, uh, and they're also, uh, the Thai authorities have brought several dozen crews of divers because they said they're probably going to have to change uh, the crew of divers going in and helping them. Um, so anyway, that's underway. It's a ambitious plan, but the alternative is that they stay there and they drown anyway. So they're, uh, they're, they're really up against it, and their uh, authorities there have said don't expect updates until about 7 a.m. tomorrow. The Thai authorities are not giving some kind of running play-by-play. There's no radio contact. Uh, there's no way to, to, uh, to exchange information. Only when divers come out uh, without the kids uh, to change up, you know, crews and all that, will they have updates. So the Thai authorities have said, we are not giving running updates uh, on this. And so don't, don't bother us. Don't pester us. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you. Uh, at the, the time that works out for us is about 7 a.m. tomorrow. There will be the first update. But anyway, that's underway right now. Uh, and it was interesting because there was some American divers, uh, U.S. Navy divers, as well as other military uh, divers that are assisting the ties have said that there really isn't a heck of a lot that Western divers can do. The one guy, uh, the retired Dutch Royal Netherlands Navy guy, the guy who actually was the first in there who got that footage of the of the kids, the guy who went in, in there with the camera, when he came out, he's a big Dutch guy. And he said, you know what? If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't do it. And he said, the ties are uniquely qualified to do this because they are expert divers and they're small people. And he said, Western divers have no business in that cave. Um, you'd be lucky to make it to even get there. And the guy said, I was lucky to get there and I was lucky to get out. I wouldn't do it again. And I would advise anybody over five foot three and 130 pounds to not do it. So the the ties are uniquely uh, qualified. So anyway, one guy, that one guy passed out and died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was a, he was a veteran. He was a tie. Thousands yeah. of hours of 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 diving, and uh, and they said, you know, this is not, you know, this is not a macho contest. You know, if some big gigantic buff special forces <laughs> combat dude thinks he's going to do it, they said there's just a, a, a there's a basic problem, and it's the uh, the geography of the cave, but you know that, as I understand it, they are three miles deep. I just cannot imagine hiking three miles into a darkened tunnel on the water. best of days. Uh, and anything, yeah, even if there wasn't even a, 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 a an inch of water no. or a hint of water around, no. three miles is a long. No, way. I did, I did it in Utah. I think I made it about a hundred feet in. I said, "All right, tell me how that goes." And then there's a giant cave in San Antonio full of bats. And I probably got thirty feet into there, and and I said, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's that is cool. What were you walking on? Well, uh, yeah, you poo, just pure poo, right? But the real show is outside the cave. When the sun goes down, they all come out. But but for this, it's not just a cave; it's a flooded cave, and it's not just dark; it's murky. It's not it's not that there's no light. It's that even in light, 
uh, you can only see your hand in front of your face by by a couple inches. So. Are you getting the feeling they're 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 speeding this up because oxygen levels were dropping? Well, that and they said that it is a sure thing that when the next round of rain comes, this cave every single year in July it fills up and that's it. It it doesn't drain until September. So they said this is it. They shouldn't have been allowed to go in 14 days ago, um, but uh, now that they're in there, they got to get them out. They have to do something desperate. And that's effectively effectively what, what they're doing. So it's going to be frustrating for Westerners because we want like minute by minute. Right. You know, but the, the tie said we wouldn't do it if we could. Uh, we're not going to and we can't. And so we'll talk to you at what's going to be, like I say, about 7 a.m. Pacific. Got to respect it. So there, uh, everyone, I hope uh, hope everything turns out as well as, uh, as possible. Uh, back right after this, you know what's not working out <clears throat> would be uh, this whole denuclearization thing. We'll uh, talk about that right after this. The Dark Secret Place, Brian sits in here until midnight at KFI M640. More stimulating talk. Yeah. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. I don't know if you got the CD or not. It is a great song, though. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It's lonely. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, on the phone with the president. We've got good news and bad news. He got the CD, and he really seemed to like it. Yeah, and? And I think it's gonna be a long, long time Till touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home Oh, no, no, no It is a great song. Uh, but how, for, for a kid who went to, for a guy who went to high school in Switzerland, how does Kim Jong-un not know this song? I, I, uh, but I, I don't know. He was, he was there in the 90s. Maybe it just wasn't. Uh... Or he lied. Yeah, you know what? I think option B, uh, because if he didn't know it, right. his the the guy across the hall, the other rich kids in his very very wealthy uh, prep school were listening to it. Maybe I I mean surely usually in high school there's some moody kid that wears a black turtleneck who's listening to all the music that no one else is listening to, you know. And when 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 everyone else is listening to that uh, Eminem in 1998, then uh, then some kid down the hall is. What is that, Klaus? Well, Kim, this is a man from England named John Elton. And he likes other men's penises. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this is a, probably a little before his time. It uh, that's a, he's only in his thirties. He likes you. Don't say I like missiles too. <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of rock. So. Um, so here's the deal. What happened was there was a bit of a fire earlier uh, this week when the U.S. intelligence community, somebody, and also commercial satellites confirmed that construction around the decades-old Yongbyon nuclear enrichment facility in North Korea, as well as improvements uh, at their uh, their missile construction facilities, as well as uh, where they manufacture the solid propellant for the missiles. And anyway, there were multiple indications that North Korea is in no way, shape, or form uh, halting, timing, outing, or de- denuclearizing any of their nuclear infrastructure that they spent the last 20 years building. And so uh, this was such a embarrassment to the Trump administration that they dispatched Mike Pompeo to get to North Korea, where he stated before he went there that he would be meeting uh, with the, the head of state, Kim Jong-un. The, uh, the the chair. Well, so anyway, it was a it was a two day meet, um, and we have a tale of of two meetings. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, calling it productive. Uh, he as he landed um, in Tokyo, uh, he he told reporters earlier today in Pyongyang before before his flight to Tokyo, he said, "quote We had many hours of productive conversations. These are complicated issues, but we've made progress." On almost all the central issues, some places a great deal of progress. Other places, there's still more work to be done. Um, the other version came from the North Koreans. And and uh, sadly, I have to say that probably for the first time in my adult life, 
the KCNA, the Korean Central News Agency, is probably uh, giving us a more accurate readout of what happened over the past two days than our very own Secretary of State. North Korea has slammed what it called uh, Pompeo's, quote, gangster-like mindset, close quote, in denuclearization talks. Um, North Korea poured cold water on the talks, saying that the attitude of the U.S. was regrettable and not in the spirit of the June 12th summit in Singapore between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. The statement carried in English by uh, and released in English by the state-run news agency KCNA said, quote, we expected the U.S. to bring constructive measures to build confidence in accordance with the spirit of the U.S.-NK summit. However, the attitude of the U.S., in the first high-level talks held on the 6th and 7th were indeed regrettable. The U.S. is fatally mistaken if it went to the extent of regarding that the DPRK would be compelled to accept out of its patience the demands reflecting its gangster-like mindset. <clears throat> uh, they went on. Uh, they called the outcome of the discussions worrisome and argued that the cancerous issues that the U.S. delegation raised were the same ones that had amplified distrust and the risk of war with past administrations. So uh, effectively, whatever Pompeo thinks he did uh, yesterday and Friday, the North Koreans are saying, um, that wasn't us. It might have been a parallel universe or something. And this probably reflects, and you've heard me now saying this for a year and a half, that the, uh, the American administration's belief that you don't have to have subject matter experts and that you don't have to listen to briefings, and that you don't have to get deep in the weeds with some of the information, some of the crucial information, um, is now uh, coming to roost. And this is like somebody saying, come on, I carved the turkey at Thanksgiving. What can be so hard about brain surgery? This is the problem uh, with, with what is effectively happening. And for everybody out there that's saying, oh, no, 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 this is disruptive, uh, this is a new kind of diplomacy, the whole thing. You know what? Maybe that works for a trade dispute, okay? M maybe that works where we're all on the same page about, hey, we make widgets, you make widgets, we make really good widgets, you make different ones. There's a market for your widgets here in California. There's a market in China for our widgets. Let's just have a free trade of widgets. The, anyone can go to a university and major in economics and you walk away with a pretty good working knowledge of how international trade works and Bretton Woods and accounting methods and the whole thing and currency exchange and the dollar being the basis currency for the world. And okay, everyone gets that. And I would assume that a billionaire gets it as well. But when it comes to a pariah state developing nuclear weapons for its own agenda and what it would take for them to get rid of them, clearly there is a lack of subject matter expertise that's being listened to in the Oval Office or in Air Force One, because <clears throat> this is now embarrassing. This is this is cataclysmically embarrassing. We have not. We've been speaking English. The, United, the the president of the United States has been speaking English, saying denuclearization, but nobody has been able to tell him that the North Koreans have no clue what that means. And uh, our demands, our promises, our president promising that nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula and denuclearization is around the corner in no way, shape, or form, are in the thought process of the actual North Koreans. So that's where we are. Now, remember, I, I, would, I, would, I would remind Mike Pompeo, he spends a day in Japan, he should probably remember that Rex Tillerson got fired by tweet. Because when he gets back to D.C. and he tells Trump, there's not going to be any kind of nuclear denuclearization, no matter what you said in Singapore or what you think Kim understood or said to you, they made it crystal clear they're not getting rid of nuclear weapons. Denuclearization to them means something absolutely different, and maybe we should have worked that out before June 12th in Singapore when you announced that nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, was now, uh, was now passed. It was a passing storm on the Korean Peninsula. In fact, uh, it, it still exists. So uh, what, what do the North Koreans think that means? I'll tell you what that, what that is and, and where this is going down the road. And then, yes, the Chinese do take this all to be one big thing on, their, on the peninsula. Trade, trade war, negotiations with the North Koreans. We'll get to all of it right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here uh, until midnight. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Hurt so much, I miss my wife.
stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Simpson here until midnight. A lot of people don't know that Elton, Elton John covered this bluegrass. Probably, I think it's about a 150-year-old bluegrass song. Rocket Man. <laughs> this is the traditional arrangement. Rocket Man. I want to get my hair cut to this. Yeah, you can find it on the YouTube. Uh, they're called Iron Horse. Rocket Man with banjos. Yeah, I will. And a, and a um, oh, not a mandolin, but uh, Ricky Skaggs plays it. Uh, uh, Ukulele? No, uh, it's the... Uh, uh, a loot. Exactly. <laughs> loot. <laughs> but a, a liar. <laughs> L-Y-R-E. Oh, yes. Yeah. Is a toga. <laughs> um, well, so the, uh, the impasse here <clears throat> is that is not between North Korea and the United States. The, the North Koreans never said, never offered, uh, and never agreed to, quote, denuclearize by our understanding of that word, meaning uh, what, what we call CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement. They, they were never presented with that acronym or that Western notion, never once. Uh, they would have ended this entire, um, this, this charade I think fairly quickly. What the North Koreans thought was happening was that the United States was going to offer assurances of security and peace. And then the North Koreans would discuss um, a acceptable level of, uh, of a nuclear arsenal that they would have uh, with the express understanding that it was not meant for South Korea, China, Japan, or anyone but the U.S., that that's their goal to get out of a negotiation with the United States. Uh, the U.S. has been sort of prisoner of what Trump said, which is denuclearization. Now, here's the thing. Here's the good news. He didn't run on that. This was not one of the things that he ran on. He ran on wall. Uh, he ran on holding China's feet to the fire trade-wise. We'll, we'll get to that here in the next break. Um, those are the things that he ran on. Uh, he ran on uh, asking NATO to to pay their two percent, um, and 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 by by the way, this is the other thing that's actually working. Uh, the, the the media is is loath to say this, but Obama asked NATO to pay their fair share too. They all we've all agreed to pay two percent of our GDP, um, and and so uh, Trump is simply doing what Obama did, but he's doing it with less artful uh, language. But never when he ran did he promise to to denuclearize North Korea. So that's the good news. Because in other words, Trump politically could back down on this. And people in Ohio are still going to go to his rally and they're still going to vote for him uh, and the whole thing in, in 2020. But what, what needs to occur between now and then is a change in the American understanding of what denuclearization means. Because there's two things that you must know right now. Thing one, North Korea is not going to give up their nuclear weapons even for something. There's nothing worth giving them up. We don't have anything they want that would be worth giving up this absolute trump card, the ace up their sleeve, that Gaddafi gave up, that uh, Ukraine gave up. Look what happens when you give up your nuclear ambitions or your actual nuclear weapons. Russia invades you or Obama bombs you, and you wind up with a piece of rebar up your butt and, uh, and eating a bullet. So, no, he's not giving up his nuclear weapons. Thing two that you must know and this is a mortal lock. We're not going to war with North Korea. We're not going to strike North Korea. There's not going to be any fire and fury. We're not hitting North Korea because there's no scenario where it doesn't wind up in a general ground attack, a, gr a general ground conflict that we are not prepared for. We as a nation, this nation of 330 million, we're not prepared to do what we did in June of 1950. We are not. We outclass them in every category, but the losses in American personnel would be in 2018 unacceptable because in the entire war on terror in the, in the 16 years that the people down the street who volunteered to serve in the military um, have been fighting, we have not lost. I, I believe um, uh, I think we're, we're approaching 7,000 total total. Okay. In, in overthrowing Saddam, and now sitting in Afghanistan, I'm not quite sure what the goal is in Afghanistan, but, but know this, in, in the years since 2001 that we have been at war, and this includes the three wars that we're fighting in Africa, um, not counting Syria, but I mean in, in Libya, 
um, in uh, in Mali and in the in uh, Somali. Those three wars, plus the one you don't know about in Yemen, plus the one that we do know about in Syria slash Iraq, uh, plus the ongoing one in Afghanistan, we have lost fewer people than the United States lost before noon on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Okay? <clears throat> and there were days, there were the ugliest uh, year in the war on terror was 2004, March and November of 2004. Those were the deadliest two months of the entire war on terror. And I was, I was in Baghdad for those months. And there were days when we would lose eight guys, five guys, four guys. We, there would be 80 wounded, 60 wounded. Those those were hard to take. They were they were. Uh, it, it seemed like we were under siege. But if you can imagine that casualty rate every ten minutes, you know, or every five minutes at Normandy, you know, that is what we would be dealing with in Korea. For that reason, there's no way. Even though these are not conscripts, these are not draftees, these are volunteers. The United States, the Pentagon, are not prepared to do what it would take violently to remove the nuclear threat from North Korea. That is why getting nuclear weapons rings a bell. Well, the bell's been rung. North Korea is a nuclear power, and that's just simply the way it is going forward. We now have to stop looking at the, uh, the Gaddafi and the Ukraine and the South Africa model where we stop them before they get nuclear weapons. Or in the case of the Ukrainians, they don't want them. They're left over from the Cold War. They're too expensive. Please come take them. You know, the whole thing. We now have to deal with North Korea the way that Reagan dealt with Pakistan. Pakistan just jumped up one day and said, yeah, we're a fully functioning nuclear power with missiles and the whole schmear. Now tell India to back off. We, we have to deal with North Korea the way that Reagan dealt with Pakistan. And that is just read him the rules. Say, welcome to the club. Here's the rules. Um, there's more, though, because the United States looks at our, our now burgeoning trade war with China as a completely separate thing what's happening in North Korea. You know how the other side looks at this. The Chinese look at this. It's all one thing. You, you are going to put a tariff on our cheap goods, and you think you're going to separate that from the South China Sea and the Korean Peninsula and the whole thing? You think you're going to escalate this by just putting tariffs on Chinese goods? That, that's not how the Chinese see it. And there's a fundamental difference between both sides and what we call a trade war. Uh, that and more also when we come back. Uh, the latest from Thailand, a rescue mission's underway. The uh, Thai authorities and military authorities looked at this and said, you know what, it's now or never. Uh, rains are coming. These kids are going to drown if we don't do anything. So doing something, um, doing something that's a long shot still has a better chance than doing nothing, knowing that these kids and their coach would drown. So that's underway. And we're sort of in a media blackout till about 7 a.m. tomorrow. But I'll tell you what we know when we come back right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. And we'll continue monitoring the situation in Thailand where the Thai military um, have begun their rescue operation for the 12 boys uh, and their soccer coach in that cave. And the Thai military, the Thai Navy are taking the lead uh, with their military divers, uh, and apparently with extensive assistance by the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy, including uh, personnel there. It was uh, interesting because I, I talked to somebody with uh, knowledge of U.S. military diving and cooperation with Thai authorities, and one of the things that they pointed out is that there really is no escaping the biology of it, is that the, um, there, there was uh, the, the guy who actually shot the video of the boys in that cave was a former Dutch uh, Royal Netherlands Navy diver, an experienced diver who opened a diving school in Thailand. And uh, as he described it, he, he barely made it through some of these openings. Apparently, he's a big Dutch guy. And uh, one of the realities of what's going on is the Thai divers, who are physically, on average, far smaller than the Americans, are far better suited for doing this than some big bulky American uh, or Dutch guy. If there are Americans who are five foot three and five foot four, then by all means go at it. But the simple reality, according to the the Dutch guy who who is the guy who shot that video of them in that cave, he said, "You know what? I have no idea how I made it out of there." He told a, a Dutch TV station 
that uh, he was foolish to do it in the first place uh, and that his good intentions got ahead of him uh, and that if he had to do it over again, he he probably wouldn't make it uh, now that he knows, uh, you know, how narrow it was. So the Thai military are taking the lead on this for a really good reason. That is, they fit in there better than Americans do, the average Americans. So anyway, um, so with all this talk of uh, of a trade war between the U.S. and China, it's interesting because um, we're entering into a phase <clears throat> that um, it, it really no one has a living memory of, including when when uh, China was closed to us prior to Nixon going to China in 1972, uh, and certainly prior to China joining the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And th- this sort of highlights the two different philosophies of the West versus the Chinese. In the West, we have uh, we have military policy. And we have foreign and foreign trade policy. Trade policy in the West has more to do with the State Department um, than the Pentagon. We we look at trade policy as a peaceful exchange of commerce between like-minded nations, and uh, and when push comes to shove, you have to add tariffs onto their imports uh, because they're uh, taxing yours, and so it's making business in their country less than fair, and the Chinese have been the absolute poster child for unfair trade and the whole thing. And we separate it from real conflict. But the thing about China and Chinese tradition, this is going back 3,000 years, is that the Chinese equate uh, commercial trade with warfare. The, the Chinese see economic warfare on the same level as actual kinetic combat. You know, you, you don't lose men at sea. You don't lose men in planes. Um, but the the future and the health of your country is at stake, nonetheless, when you go to trade war. Uh, the the Chinese took the Silk Road very seriously for uh, for hundreds of years. Um, the the Chinese took economic trade with Europe, economic trade with Central Asia, very very seriously, and they equated it with national survival. Uh, even though China was a, a fairly closed kingdom. They, when they began trading with Central Asia and the West, they began relying on it. Uh, the Chinese have not changed uh, a darn bit. Part of the reason that they make these territorial claims in the South China Sea is because the Chinese see the importation of resources, whether it's oil from Africa and the Middle East uh, or raw materials from Australia, uh, coal uh, from Bellingham, Washington, coal from Australia, iron ore, etc., uh, the Chinese see that as the precursor to national security, because after all, that stuff, the petroleum and the iron ore and the aluminum ore bauxite and the titanium and magnesium ore, those become the fighter planes and the tanks and the ships and the aircraft carriers. So the Chinese take this stuff very, very seriously. They also take um, uh, the open espionage that they're able to do with the United States very seriously. This is I'm I'm not a fan of trade wars um, because uh, they eventually cost both sides uh, a, a lot of jobs and money, and it becomes a marathon to see who can lose the most. W- what I would rather see would be a focused, concentrated campaign, uh, an anti-espionage campaign, naming names and stopping the Chinese uh, cold as they continue to this day to take all of our submarine secrets, all of our anti-submarine secrets, the F-35 secrets, not just stealth, but anti-stealth technology, um, our uh, service-to-air missile technology in the form of the next generation of Patriot uh, and anti-ballistic missile defense. The Chinese are are so good at using our own immigration system, our own H-1B visa system, to pre-position people here in jobs. Um, we, we don't have an answer to this because the Chinese don't have an equivalent uh, uh, demand to uh, for Americans to go work in China. They, the, uh, the pay is one-tenth what it is here in the U.S. And even if you went to China with your brand-new electrical engineering degree, you would not get within a mile of a classified program. And the Chinese just know this because you're not Chinese. A Russian can't do it. A Belgian can't do it, a Canadian can't do it, and hell no, an American can't do it. The only American who could do it would be uh, a uh, someone of Chinese descent 
who the uh, Chinese wanted to turn uh, when they got back here to the U.S. They, they have an advantage in industrial espionage that we just don't have. Now, that's the kind of trade war uh, that I can support. Uh, the thing is, though, that's more like an espionage war. But um, All right, uh, so we'll uh, continue updating you on what's going on in Thailand. It's the Dark Secret Place. Hour number one is in the can. Back right after this, uh, a Israeli spy executed in 1965. They finally got his watch back. I'll tell you about Eli Cohen. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here for hour number two. And uh, like I told you there in the first hour, if you're uh, just joining us, uh, Thai military authorities have actually dispatched uh, apparently uh, several dozen divers now to go into that cave and pull the uh, pull the uh, 12 boys and the coach out. And they uh, obviously have done the, uh, the risk analysis here, seeing that there's rain uh, impending in the next uh, 24 hours, and rain would raise the water level in that cave to a uh, lethal level. And the, the miracle that had these, uh, these, these boys and their coach live for nine days might be over if they allow them to stay in there because of the rain. Um, and so Thai authorities have uh, trained up and equipped uh, apparently several dozen divers that are now beginning the approximately five-hour trip into that cave. And uh, they have been pre-positioning uh, air tanks, scuba tanks along the way. That's what they've been doing the last three days. And that's why they lost that one uh, veteran uh, Thai uh, Navy scuba diver uh, who's who uh, somehow ran out of oxygen or something. But uh, they've been pre-positioning scuba tanks along the way. And so they are uh, the, the rescue attempt is underway. So... Uh, the total round trip, and this is this is what's crazy. The total round trip for just a little little past a mile uh, underwater, very narrow passages, is about eleven and a half hours. So uh, there will there might be some news early on, probably not. Uh, the way the ties have basically fenced off the access to the uh, to the cave entrance with with soft uh, tarps and things like that. They've done a visibility barrier. They've also had uh, asked the media to go back to another perimeter about a mile away. Uh, and so I, I would imagine there's not going to be any news between uh, now and 11 hours from now. But uh, so anyway, the, uh, the attempt is underway to pull these boys out of the cave. Um, most of them, I guess all of them, uh, are not swimmers. They've never done scuba, and so they're they're going to have to uh, uh, basically understand that it's either this or it's a certain death with the uh, the water level raising. So <clears throat> so we'll um, we'll keep monitoring this here at KFI, and I'll keep watching it on uh, Twitter and passing uh, things on. So speaking of social media, speaking of uh, the uh, the Twitter. There is a, uh, there is a currently a thread, what's called a, a thread on Twitter, and that is someone who begins a thought and continues adding to it until they complete the thought. There's a very popular anti-F35 uh, thread on Twitter right now that a lot of people are passing around. Um, let's see here. It's already been liked. Eight and a half thousand times. It's been retweeted, meaning um, someone on Twitter can send this thread to their followers and say, "Hey, I saw this thing. Why don't you read it?" But it is—it's uh, very anti F thirty-five, and it's not going to do it justice if I don't read it. Okay, if I don't read the whole thing. Um, so this is what a lot of people are reading. This is what they're taking as fact about the F thirty-five program uh, as of this weekend. It's from a guy. Who doesn't identify himself? Uh, he calls himself Bad Egg, Mike Roach, number three. And he says, Professor by day, poster by night. And he says, Middle Tennessee. And I don't know if he said Middle Tennessee University or why he's a professor by day and a poster by night, but 
Here's what he says um, in post number one. Uh, there's a picture of an F-35. He says, this is the U.S.'s Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II, the next generation of American fighter jets. It has been in development since 1992. All told, the program is slated to cost upwards of a trillion dollars. And it is one of the most colossal pieces of S ever created. Next tweet. The F-35 is supposed to replace the F-16 and the A-10. Like the A-10, it's supposed to be a fighter and a bomber, and it is supposed to be able to carry a bunch more bombs than the F-22. It is also supposed to be a single plane shared between the Marines, the Air Force, and Navy. This is where the problems start. See, they also wanted it to be a stealth plane. Trump famously claimed it was invisible, and the Marines wanted it to have vertical takeoff and landing engines to take off from ships. It's also loaded down with a bunch of uh, general wowing bells and whistles like touchscreens and VR helmets. In order to have all this, the F-35 is incredibly heavy. So heavy, in fact, that they had to cut a bunch of features, including mandatory fire safety equipment, reinforcements, even bolts, substituting glue for bolts. The plane is literally glued together. In order to have stealth capabilities, the plane is painted with a special, incredibly expensive paint. This paint peels off if the plane is in an area with more than 0% humidity, so the planes have to be kept in expensive climate-controlled hangars. Every time they're flown, they have to be repainted. And because the F-35's fuel is heat-sensitive, every truck that carries it also has to be painted with a special heat-resistant paint. Vertical takeoff and landing takes a huge amount of fuel, and the F-35 didn't have, an, have room enough uh, for all that fuel. So extra fuel tanks and the vertical take, takeoff and landing engine were put behind the pilot in place of the extra oxygen tanks. And it still wasn't enough. The F-35 can either fly or it can vertically take off, but it can't do both. If the vertical takeoff and landing feature is used, the plane has to be refueled immediately in air. And remember how I said stuff was behind the pilot? That means that the pilot can't see behind them. There are special cameras outside the plane hooked into the sci-fi virtual reality helmet to let the pilot see. If the firmware in the helmet or touchscreen controls crashes, which has happened in test flights, the pilot has to lean around in order to actually see around the cockpit. Worse, there's been times where the oxygen stops working. Because this system is digital, it's also prone to bugs, meaning your vision can get scrambled. You can start seeing double, or it can start targeting things that aren't there. And because there's a super sci-fi target-sharing target system, these bugs are made worse by every other plane. There was an issue at one point where the F-35 engines got so hot that it would melt the paint off the tail of the jet. Under certain weather conditions, the external cameras fog up with humidity, forcing the pilots to fly right next to targets in order to actually aim them. As you can tell, and let me break away from the thread a second, this guy's not very pro F-35. Uh, when we come back, again, if you're on Twitter, possibly even Facebook, you're probably seeing this thread this weekend because people are panicky and they're retweeting it or sharing it on uh, on the Facebook. So. When we come back, I'll finish reading this thread, and I'll tell you what the problem is. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight, KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk. The dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. And I'm, I'm reading from a very popular social media thread that showed up on uh on Friday, and it became viral. A lot of people who uh, don't follow defense policy but get outraged at government spending and et cetera were, uh, were pinging this thing around on Twitter and on Facebook, sharing it on Facebook. And so a lot of, I, I'm, I, I feel like I need to read it to you so that you hear uh, everything that's wrong with the F-35. Again, this is a trillion-dollar program. And uh, in, in uh, some of the critiques that are probably going to become uh, debate points and conventional wisdom before this weekend's done. Um, so where was I? The, uh, the paint. Uh, there was an issue at one point where the F-35 engines got so hot that it had melt the paint off the tail of the jet. 
Under certain weather conditions, the external cameras fog up with humidity, forcing the pilots to fly right next to targets in order to actually aim at them. This plane will cost over a trillion dollars. Um, then he quotes from an article, quoted, famously lost in mock aerial combat within visual range, where its radar stealth is of no advantage to an F-16 in early 2015. One of the planes the F-35 is supposed to replace as an aerial fighter is the F-16. The F-35 lost repeatedly in air-to-air maneuvering, despite the fact that the test was rigged in the F-35's favor because the F-16 employed the uh, heavier two, the F-16 employed was the heavier two-seater version and was further loaded down with heavy drag-inducing external fuel tanks. Then he goes on, over a trillion dollars. If the plane tries to turn, it can crash. Some generals, by the way, don't want this. There's a lot of them who just want more F-22s and A-10s. The kind of warfare the U.S. does doesn't really include dogfights anymore, but it seems like a lot of the higher-ups have top-gun fantasies. The Air Force actually got caught taking existing A-10s, chopping them up, and reporting them as destroyed because it's, it's a support plane, and the Air Force doesn't believe in support anymore. And the thing is, it can't even dogfight. And he repeats that article. The F-35, uh, let me just skip ahead. By the way, the F-35 is the Air A is the Air Force plane, a.k.a. the good one. The F-35B is the marine version with the vertical takeoff and landing parts and engines, and it's exponentially worse. The C model is the Navy one. And to add insult to injury, the F-35 flyers discovered that they couldn't even move their head inside the radar evading jet's cramped cockpit. The helmet is too large. Lockheed has also been pitching a special combat-focused beast mode that can hold missiles more than the normal configuration. And then he goes on because there's a Transformer. There's a Lego Transformer uh, F-35. The Pentagon's report found that the lightweight pilots had a, that, pardon me, pilots with lightweight had a 23% chance of being killed and a 100% chance of being injured in an ejection. Um, and uh, then he goes on citing uh, a bunch of G.I. Joe model planes uh, and things like this. So um, here is the uh, bottom line. Uh, the thread that you're seeing on Twitter and on uh, Facebook, wherever this guy got his information, it's uh, approximately um, 10 to 15 years old, uh, generally from first flights of the F-35. Here's the, uh, the curious thing about the F-35 is that, yes, it's a trillion-dollar program, and that's spread out over 50 years. The F-35 uh, right now is being adopted uh, by more NATO air forces and non-NATO air forces than any aircraft that we have had since the F-4 Phantom. Uh, and even that took, took uh, years for foreign uh, buyers to get on board with the F-4 Phantom before uh, Israel and Turkey and Japan and uh, West Germany, uh, Great Britain— and others bought the F-4. The F-35 was uh, developed with the U.K. The uh, the Brits poured a lot of money into it because they need this aircraft for the Queen Elizabeth, their their new fighter, and the pardon me, their new aircraft carrier, and the one after this. Um, this thread is literally decade one decade old information. All of these challenges that you heard about the paint melting, and uh, and the helmet being too big, and the whole thing. Uh, these are engineering problems that that uh, pretty much uh, habitate or or, or uh, habituate, I should say, every single new aircraft. Uh, the Osprey was a dismal testing uh, phase. The uh, the V twenty two Osprey uh, killed a total of thirty people, including one full Osprey full of uh, infantry Marines who were there uh, for for a uh, usability test. Uh, the Osprey was not a nice plane when it was being tested, but that's why you test planes. And the F-35, by the way, has yet to kill a pilot. Uh, the F-35's challenges have all been uh, solved on the ground by Lockheed Martin and the other contractors. Now, is it expensive? Yeah, it is way expensive. Does the Air Force wish that they had continued the production line of the F-22? They sure as crap do. They really, really do. So if you're if you're seeing this thread, uh, ignore it 
because I don't know where this guy got his information lately, but um, I have been a fairly consistent critic of the program just because of its expense. But the fact that the aircraft has now been adopted by so many NATO air forces, including non-NATO, like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Israel, and Israel has already flown them in combat, um, a, a lot of the issues that you're hearing in that guy's complaint were actually uh, resolved in the last four years. I don't know. I don't know why this guy's information is so far behind. Uh, the Dutch are um, some of the most skeptical fighter buyers in the world. It, it it takes an act of God to get them to get out of their F-16s. Well, they're getting out of their F-16s for the F-35. Um, so the F-35, and according to all the pilots who've flown it, and that this means guys who got out, by the way is that uh, this is the aircraft that they should have had 10 years ago. It is better than any legacy aircraft. That includes the F-15, F, pardon me, F-18F Super Hornet, and that in any future war, they want to be in an F-35. So it pains me to say that, but uh, you heard me say it. So ignore this thread if you see it in social media. All right, uh, Dark Seeker Place, Brian Sue's back in just a second. The uh, latest from uh, 1965 when we come back. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight, and uh, we're continuing to monitor uh, events in Thailand. The uh, The local governor and Thai authorities have announced that a uh, rescue mission is underway for the 12 boys and their soccer coach in the cave in Thailand and the uh, local authorities at the site are uh, telling media that are assembled uh, not to take images of the rescue workers or uh, anything uh, about the results over the next 12 to 13 hours, uh, saying that they'll seize any images that are inappropriate and other things. Uh, Some Americans have arrived and they, they appear to be American military divers. Not quite sure what they're going to do, having just arrived and, and never, you know, seeing the uh, the caves or anything. But but um, the uh, the Thais evidently have uh, several dozen divers going in who have now made the trip to the cave where the boys are and back uh, several times. And the the, the uh, what was curious about it is that. It's, you know, unlike a deep dive where you have to decompress on the way back, there, uh, uh, the, the depth of this cave is not an issue whatsoever. It's just purely the, uh, the narrowness of the passage. And so the ties have spent the last three days pre-positioning uh, filled scuba tanks so that the divers can exchange tanks uh, and they can put smaller tanks on these boys and they can exchange uh, tanks with them. And so the challenge that they're going to have, uh, evidently uh, one source says that they've actually had instructors now for two days. They're with the boys, fitting them for tanks, and then giving them little dry runs in the water um, of, of how to breathe and how to spend time water and to not freak out and the whole thing. So they feel like now's the time because the rains are coming, I guess, uh, tomorrow and Monday. Uh, at that site, and the water already raised is just going to go up higher and uh, would, would leave no breathable space, and it would surely doom the uh, the kids. So anyway, that that uh, is underway, and don't expect any updates uh, between now and, and like 11 hours from now. Well, the, the Israelis have a long memory. Israeli intelligence and Mossad have a very, very long memory, and the legendary Israeli spy— Eli Cohen, who was uh, hanged in 1965 in Damascus by the Assyrian regime, his wristwatch has been somehow magically recovered by Mossad out of Syria and has been triumphantly brought back uh, to Israel, where it will be on display until uh, September, Jewish New Year, and then it'll be delivered into the possession of his wife, or I should say his widow. Uh, He was hanged, uh, executed, like you say, in 1965. Eli Cohen uh, is a legendary Israeli spy and a a really, really uh, unique individual. Uh, He was born Elihu Elihu, uh, Benshal Cohen. 
in Aleppo, in Aleppo, Syria. Um, he was commonly known as Eli Cohen. Um, he was the uh, son of a, a pair of devout Jewish Zionists, uh, you know, in, in, uh, born in 1924. Um, and uh, even prior to World War II, there was a, a very robust movement to uh, reclaim Palestine as Israel, as the British took the Palestinian mandate after World War I. Uh, and this, in many ways, this energized Zionists around the world from, uh, from America, but especially closer to Palestine. And the, uh, the Cohens of Damascus were uh, some of those. Uh, Wikipedia describes it like this. His father had moved to Alexandria, Egypt, from Aleppo in 1914, uh, in January of 1947, Eli Cohen chose to enlist in the Egyptian army as a alternative to paying the prescribed sum that all young Jews were supposed to pay. There was a thing called a jizya uh, for Christians and Jews in Egypt that if you didn't want to serve in the Egyptian military because you would be harassed and your life might be in danger, you could pay a sum and get out of it. Um, but he chose to serve instead of pay that fee, but uh, he was declared ineligible on grounds of questionable loyalty. Uh, later that year, he left university in Alexandria and began studying at home. Uh, he was harassed by the Muslim Brotherhood off of campus. In the years following the creation of Israel, many Jewish families began leaving Egypt, and with, with them, uh, they took their capital, many, many wealthy Jewish families uh, leaving Egypt. Though his parents and three brothers left for Israel in 1949, Eli Cohen remained to finish a degree in electronics and to coordinate Jewish and Zionist activities. Uh, in 1951, the uh, the uh, Nasser coup took place, and King Farouk was uh, was uh, kicked out. Um, the uh, a very notorious anti-Zionist campaign was initiated by the Egyptian military. Cohen was arrested and interrogated. Um, he remained in Egypt, uh, proclaiming that he was a loyal Egyptian, though he was Jewish. Of course, he, he spoke absolutely unaccented, perfect Arabic, uh, and could blend in as a Syrian, blend in as an Egyptian, uh, whatever. But he began uh, working in 1955 uh, in a special Mossad sabotage unit made up of Jewish-Egyptian citizens. There's a very, uh, very, very little-known operation uh, here in America called Operation Susanna that in the mid-50s and late-50s, uh, Israeli Egyptians began uh, a, a, <clears throat> a campaign of uh, bombing and terrorism against American and British installations in an effort to, uh, to erode uh, relations between the West and Egypt. Uh, the, the event is referred to as the Lavon Affair. Um, anyway, after 1956, when Britain, France, and Israel attempted to uh, after uh, after Nasser, the new leader of Egypt, uh, nationalized the Suez Canal, the British, the French, and the Israelis invaded uh, in 1956 and attempted to take the Suez Canal. Uh, they lacked political backing by the United States. President Eisenhower threw him under the bus, uh, so it failed. So after the failed Suez operation, Eli Cohen left the country. Uh, he emigrated to Israel. And he was almost immediately recruited by the Israeli Defense Forces. He was placed in military intelligence. Uh, he was a great counterintelligence guy because of his perfect Arabic. Uh, the work was boring to him. He attempted to join the Mossad. Um, the uh, Mossad rejected him. He resigned from the military. Uh, and he worked as a filing clerk in an insurance company for the next couple of years. Uh, he married an Iraqi Jew, a mo woman named uh, Nadja Majald. Uh, the Mossad did wind up recruiting him uh, because they needed a special agent to infiltrate the Syrian government. So he went to Syria under an alias. In February of 1962, the alias was Kamel Amin Thabet. He left his wife in Israel, and he went there as an importer-exporter, um, and he had a social life in Argentina, in Argentina, he could rub elbows with uh, wealthy Arabs. Uh, he could speak freely about uh, about his hatred of Israel, the whole thing. So he became a good guy, and uh, he began making money for Syrian higher-ups. And by 1965, he was very much deep inside 
uh, the Syrian Ba'ath Party and Hafez al-Assad's government. Uh, and he was so well-trusted that the Syrian Minister of Defense uh, called him his uh, number one uh, uh, assistant. He was even considered for Deputy Minister of Defense of Syria, a Mossad spy. And he wound up, for instance, um, taking pictures on the Golan Heights uh, and getting those pictures out to Israel. During this time, he was allowed to leave. Uh, his assignment allowed him to leave Syria like once a year and go see his wife. Uh, and all that, but he was um, he was uncovered uh, basically um, by a guy who disliked him and uh, sensed there was something wrong with him. They didn't need a lot of evidence. He was uncovered in 1965, uh, tried very quickly and hung, and not hung correctly, where you drop from a scaffold. He was they actually put the noose around his neck and and lifted him up. So he died really horribly in the middle of Damascus at a square in May of 1965. Uh, the Syrians claimed that they, that they moved his remains three times so that no one would ever know what, where he was buried. Um, but the Mossad have recovered his wristwatch. They've authenticated it, and, uh, and they have it back. And so they are um, – the implication here is that they probably do know where he's buried, and the Israelis have asked for, a huma- on a humanitarian basis, uh, a return – of uh, of his remains. All right, uh, so that's the latest. That's uh, that's the latest from 1965. Uh, Brian sits in here. Back right after this, the latest from Thailand. We come back. It's the dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. One more time at KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Shapiro with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here uh, one last time. So a rescue effort is underway in Thailand for the 12 boys and the soccer coach stuck in that cave. And it all began with the Thai authorities telling the foreign press and their domestic press there at the press camp to get back about a mile. And they put up visibility screens at the cave entrance. And um, this is when uh, a bunch of foreign divers have arrived, uh, Thai divers. Thai Navy divers are apparently taking the lead, uh, and uh, foreign equipment is there. U.S. U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy personnel are on scene, um, providing apparently maintenance oversight and uh, and uh, filled tanks uh, and all this. And so, effectively, here's here's some of the facts to keep in mind: that uh, in all likelihood, there's not going to be uh, any news until around 7 a.m. Pacific time tomorrow. Um, the round trip from the cave entrance to where the boys are uh, stranded is about 11 and a half hours. And this is by experienced divers who have done it several times. And so the challenge here, as we all know, is that these, these boys are, are not expert swimmers. They've never scuba dived. Um, and they're going to be asked to go from non-swimmers stuck in a cave um, to uh, a one-way, approximately six-hour trip. Uh, along the way, there are several larger chambers <clears throat> where, because of the uh, draining of the water, these these boys are not going to be expected to make a nonstop five-and-a-half-hour trip, um, but they are going to be expected uh, to make a, a couple, several-hour uh, trips to get to these chambers where there is oxygen that's been pumped in there. And so presumably uh, they're going to be using rest stops. And, uh, and one, one Thai source said, worst case scenario, if we can move them a quarter mile closer per day to the entrance and let them rest uh, for a couple hours, then that is uh, better than leaving them a mile into this cave. And so it doesn't seem like the plan is to pull them all out in, in you know, onesies and twosies and single trips, but rather to use these sort of mid, uh, mid chambers. There's, there's three or four main chambers uh, where water's been pumped out and air's been pumped in uh, that logically you would uh, just try to guide these boys in like one hour bites to these chambers and let them. Uh, you know, get some rest, get something to eat, um, and uh, and hopefully be more confident uh, in in the experience that they just had. And so, this is uh, one authority is saying 
that though the experienced divers have been able to do it in 11 hours round trip, keep in mind that a very experienced diver uh, just died on his way back of this round trip. And this is not far out at sea, and it's not 5,000 feet below the, the waves. Uh, this, this was a guy, a very experienced diver with thousands of hours diving, um, who died just several hundred yards away from finishing the trip to, uh, uh, back to the cave entrance. So, uh, so they've obviously done the risk and reward with monsoon rain impending. And they know that this cave fills up. They know that this cave uh, absolutely uh, has no more air left. The air goes through the limestone and it fills up. It's not like a submarine. And so they can either stay there and and almost assuredly die uh, horribly drowning, or they can try this and get out in a uh, controlled fashion. So we'll, um, like I say, this this kicked off. Uh, apparently around 9 p.m. or slightly before Pacific time. And uh, so there's not going to be really any information probably until around 7 a.m. tomorrow. There's going to be a press conference where Thai authorities are going to, I guess, describe what the rescue attempt is going to be. But uh, hopefully when I'm on the air tomorrow for at 8 p.m. for Super Hyper Local Sunday, uh, there'll be some good news. Uh, and, you know, given if it was your kid, uh, that there was a uh, near sure thing, uh, uh, virtually assured that the kid would die when the rain comes, or there's a very slim chance that they can come out on scuba. You know, I think obviously you would you would green light this and say, yeah, then uh, you know your your judgment, do whatever you got to do. So, uh, so we would be uh, short of mirac- just short of miraculous, if not miraculous, if all twelve uh, stranded people were pulled out. But we'll see uh, tomorrow. All right, that's the Dark Secret Place. I'll be back tomorrow at 8 p.m. for Super Hyper Local Sunday. Brian Suits uh, out, and uh, I will talk to you tomorrow here on KFI. Uh, thanks to uh, Hector. Thanks to Michael Chappé. We'll talk to you tomorrow on KFI AM640. More stimulating talk.